Good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My guest today is Chris Nashawadi, whose book Caddyshack, The Making of a Hollywood Cinderella Story, was published in April by Flatiron Books. Caddyshack was a first film I saw as a college student, and I have brothers who will quote large sections of the screenplay with little prompting, so it holds, it holds a special place for me, even though I know there are those who simply don't get it, but that's part of what will make this conversation interesting. Chris, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Thanks for having me, Charlie. I want to start out with a loaded question that does absolutely nothing to hide my own prejudice on the subject, but why are 80s comedies the best, and why is it so rare to see a really great comedy film today? Well, I suspect we're probably the same age, so our answers are probably the same, um, or roughly the same age. I just think that, you know, whatever comedy came out when you were, like, between the ages of, like, 12 and 18, I think, are the movies that will always be the dearest to you. Same with rock bands and things like that. Uh, I do think that that there was... um, a particularly golden, golden age in the 80s, you know, between Stripes and, and Animal House and, and, and Vacation and, and all of the John Hughes movies where comedy was really changing, at least movie comedies. Um, they were becoming uh, a little more satirical and, and biting and funny and realistic and, and clever in a way that was informed by uh, the satirists at Saturday Night Live and the National Lampoon and Second City. Uh, all those talents sort of changed movie comedies, I think. I want to get on to talking about Caddyshack, but I want to talk a little bit about your career first. You're the film critic for Entertainment Weekly. How did you get started in the movie reviewing business? Well, I, I've been I've been working here for, for nearly 25 years, and um, I, I didn't start off as a critic. I've really just been working as a critic for the last five years or so. Before that, I wrote a lot of feature stories. You know, I would go to movie sets and write production stories, or I would interview celebrities and, and actors and directors and write profiles of them. So, so reviewing is sort of a, a new tool in the toolbox uh, of my journalism, you know, career. Um, but I've been lucky. It's you know, there was a, there was a time when I really couldn't go to another movie set uh, because um, they're not as glamorous as you think, and so <laughs> the idea of, of reviewing movies was a real challenge. Um, because it's hard, and uh, there are people who do it really well. So uh, I, it was a challenge that I was ready to, to take on, and it came at just the right time. I think there's this interest among people about sort of the behind the scenes. Your book is about behind the scenes of the making of a movie. And I know I've seen a lot lately uh, about sort of how shows like Saturday Night Live are put together. But how is Entertainment Week put together? Are you sitting there in a room full of other writers, or are you off in a movie theater in the dark by yourself? Uh, well, when I review a movie, I usually see it a week or two before it opens in theaters. And, um, you know, mo- I'm, I'm based in New York City, and, and most of the movie studios have a screening room somewhere in midtown Manhattan where critics and journalists um, are invited to see the movie before it opens. So um, hopefully there's there's some lead time that you can, you know, come out of the theater and think about the movie a little bit and 
sort of formulate what you want to say about it. Um, but too often lately, they're, they're showing the movies, you know, just a couple of days before they open, and there's a race to get your review up online first. And so you don't get as much time as you would like to really sort of marinate uh, on a movie. Um, but that's generally how it works. My wife, I have to say, reads Entertainment Week every week, cover to cover. Um, but we're we're slightly, in spite of your kindness and thinking that we're the same age, we're actually slightly older. I think I maybe just matured slowly. That's why I like the '80s comedy so much. Okay. Um, but but we are in that generation who, where we really do read the physical magazine that comes into our house. And you mentioned putting the review up online. Do you have a sense of of your readership of how many people are reading online versus actually reading a magazine that comes into their home? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's changing. It sort of changes every year. It used to be that, you know, the audience for Entertainment Weekly was much more the print edition and, and a smaller, younger demographic would, would read the articles and reviews online. But, you know, it's slowly sort of the, the balance is becoming more even and if if not maybe the online becoming a little bit more. Um and, and that's fine with me. I, I, I honestly have no I'm pretty agnostic about the you know the format that that my reviews and stories run in. I don't really care if people read it online or in the magazine. I'm I'm still of a generation where I actually get the New York Times paper edition delivered every day. So nice. for me, I don't read off a Kindle. I don't you know I actually read books. Um, so I, I'm a slow adopter, but but when it comes to to getting my work seen, I'm I couldn't be more agnostic about how people look at it. I find it interesting because my my novels deal with physical books, rare books. And so when I'm out on the road and talking to readers, one of the questions I like to ask is, hey, did you read this novel on, a, on an iPad or a Kindle? Or did you read this novel uh, in a on paper and ink? And it's fascinating to me that more and more often the people who are reading it in paper and ink are actually the younger readers, the ones uh, who are like getting back into vinyl and they're they're getting back into the idea of you know sort of physicality in their lives. Uh, Well, that's encouraging. I like I like to hear that. Yeah, and I think you know for the older readers, the 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 Kindle or the iPad is an opportunity to bypass the whole notion of the large print edition. You know, and to Mm, be able to those of us who suddenly are wearing uh, uh, wearing reading glasses all the time. So this book and. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think this is your first solo book. You wrote a book together with John Landis. Is that right? Well, actually, the book that I wrote previous to this was sort of a coffee table book about the B-movie producer Roger Corman. John Landis, the director, he um, he wrote the introduction. Oh, okay. okay. So that was that was my book for sure. Um, but that was a very niche book. I mean, you know, there there, there isn't a huge audience out there f- who want to read about, you know, uh, movies like, you know, uh, uh, Attack of the Crab Monsters and right. you know uh, Death Race 2000 and things like that. Uh, I mean, there are, but it's not. Uh, you know, it was never intended to be a big mainstream book. Whereas Caddyshack, you know, I always felt that there was an audience out there who were interested in in not only that movie, but also you know could be interested in golf or could be interested in in, in how movies are made or, or or comedy in general from that era. So so to me, this is a more. It's got a broader appeal. So what was it like to shift gears from writing reviews and writing feature articles to suddenly, you know, looking at writing something that was going to be 200, 250 pages long? It was terrifying. I mean, you know, the the bottom line is that it was, it was a real scary challenge. Um, you know, I, I, I tried, I, you know, I've written a lot of production stories about how movies are made. Um, so 
I knew that I could tell the story, but the, the, the length of it sort of intimidated me. So the, really what I tried to do is, you know, the stories, the features that I've written for magazines and not just Entertainment Weekly, but other magazines like Sports Illustrated or Wired or Esquire, you know, those tend to be like in the four to 5,000 word range. So I, I sort of thought to myself that as I was writing Caddyshack, you know, I'm just going to approach this as, you know, 24,000 word articles. You know what I mean? I, I really just tried to do it piecemeal. Like this is, this is the story I'm going to tell in this 4,000 word chapter. And I'm going to try to tell it with a beginning, a middle and an end. And that'll be a chapter of the book. It, it's, it was purely psychological, so I wouldn't get you know just overwhelmed by the whole thing. It just made it seem more manageable to me. I have a lot of young people come to me and they say, how do you write a novel? And I say, well, you don't write a novel. You write a page. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the next day you write another page. And then you do that you know, for a year, and then you've got a novel. <laughs> uh, but I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. And, and one of the things I liked about the book and uh, this seems to connect with the way you created it is you do have these sort of almost, I don't want to say independent essays, but you have, um, you know, these smaller stories being told within the context of this larger story. And I thought that worked really well. Well, thanks a lot. You know, one of the things I really tried to do was to sort of end each chapter on a bit of, uh, a hanger, you know what I mean? A cliffhanger, not a cliffhanger. It's not, you know, it's not like an adventure story, but, but to sort of make you want to turn the page and start the next chapter. Um, you know, I, I just sort of feel like that's, it's like watching a Netflix show, uh, when you get to the end and the next one's about, it says, you know, five minutes, five seconds until the next episode <laughs> starts. They sort of hook you in that way. So, so I, I, that's what I tried to do with this. Yeah. I think the best books are the ones where you don't put the book down in between chapters. You right. know, it's like, you. oh, I've got to start the next chapter, even if I just read a little bit of the next chapter because I've got this appointment or I've got to go do this thing. I, I, I can't stop here. Uh, and I, and I try to do the same thing in, in writing fiction, so I don't see any reason why it can't work for nonfiction as well. Sure. You, you said something that really struck me, um, and for, for our listeners, um, Chris and I met briefly last week. He was in Winston-Salem to do an event, so I got the pleasure of listening to him talk about his book there. And you said that in... In researching this book, in spite of the fact that, as you say, you've done a lot of production stories in the past, you said you learned a lot about movie making and the process of writing this book. And I wondered if what you learned about movie making, first of all, what it was, but also did it affect the way that you approach um, your job as a reviewer? Yeah, I think it, I think it probably will. I mean, it, it's 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 hard to say. I mean, I, I certainly have. Uh, a better appreciation for just how many people are involved in, in the making of a film from beginning to end. And, you know, I mean, at Entertainment Weekly, when I would write stories, I would tend to focus on the stars, you know, because that's what people want to read about or the director, because those are the high profile names. Um, but in researching this book, you know, I talked to the editor and I talked to the casting director and I and I, I got a real education in how movies are, you know, from from the moment they're pitched to when they're written to when they're cast to when, uh, you know, you find a location to, you know, the director of photography. I mean, just all of the d- little departments that are so important and a movie couldn't exist without them, but are so often ignored because they're not glamorous. Um, you know, I really dug deep into all of those stories, uh, to get, you know, the the material for this book. Um, so I felt like I really, I did learn quite a bit. 
My wife and I have a friend who works in Canada as a Foley artist. He has his own Foley studio, and he works for all these big-budget films. And it's amazing. We went to see him work, and you go, this guy's making these all these creative decisions about the film with no director looking over his shoulder, no producer. And so now, every time we go to a film, we're like really conscious of the Foley, and we always wait and see who the Foley artist was. And so I can understand that you know that times all those different departments uh, must be pretty eye-opening. It is. And Foley artists in particular have a great job because they're, you know, they get to, especially if they're doing like an action movie and they get to like rip apart celery to make it sound oh, yeah. like someone's neck is getting snapped. Uh, it's, it really is. It's a great job. Uh, Andy's house is amazing. It's just like full of everything you can imagine that will make a sound. He has right. one of them in his house. You know, it's just, it's incredible. You start your book, not with Caddyshack. Um, in fact, you, we get pretty far into the book before the word Caddyshack even, even shows up, but you are talking about the history of certain types of comedy, especially in the 1970s. What was happening in the comedy world at that time that changed so many things? Well, you know, it was really, um, there were three sort of comedy tributaries that all flowed together um on caddyshack uh you know the first was um the national lampoon magazine which started in 1970 uh it was an outgrowth of the harvard lampoon magazine and then one of the founders was doug kenny who would go on to become a very big part of this book um doug kenny was a brilliant guy and he started the national lampoon um which was a satiric magazine that was, you know, sort of like a cross between Mad Magazine and The New Yorker, you know, a real mix of highbrow and lowbrow. Um, they took on politics and pop culture, uh, and it was really uh, a savage uh Magazine, You know, they had that famous cover where they had a gun pointed to the head of a dog and it said, if you don't buy this magazine, we'll, we'll kill this dog. So, you know, that, that gives you a, a sense of their, their sense of humor. Um, the second was Second City in Chicago, which had been around since the 50s, but, but really was getting political and, and interesting in, in the 70s with Harold Ramis and John Belushi and Gilda Radner and Dan Aykroyd and uh, all of these people who would go on to Saturday Night Live. Um, including, you know, Bill Murray and his brother Brian Doyle Murray. The third group was uh, was Saturday Night Live itself, which <clears throat> took a lot of the writing talent from The Lampoon and a lot of the acting talent from Second City and, and blended them together to create, you know, a really revolutionary uh, satire television show. It was really the first time that the baby boomers had seen themselves reflected on the TV, uh, especially during the era of Watergate and, and right after Vietnam. It really felt like... Um, you know, the, the lunatics were running the asylum a little bit. And and so all those three came together, first on Animal House and then on Caddyshack. So there was a real sort of um, uh, break from the previous sort of, you know, comedy, which was a little bit, you know, frankly, a little, a little bit um, – hearty har har you know what i mean like bob hope jokes and henny right. youngman jokes and and just not that funny i mean i like mel brooks but like you know those movies are a little bit you know um to, not they're not my idea of edgy uh so so anyway all of that came together on caddyshack it was really the 70s were a, a decade where um all the rules about comedy were changing and all these new voices were were finding an outlet I have to admit, until pretty recently, I had not heard of Doug Kenny, although I had read issues of the National Lampoon and seen movies that he had written. But uh, first, there was this Netflix movie called A Futile and Stupid Gesture, which is about 
Doug Kenny, and then there was your book, and I started reading some of your interviews. The Parade Magazine called him a tragic hero. Um, I, I'm curious if you if you saw the Netflix movie, what did you think about? It? Do you think it was a fair treatment of him? Um, you know, look, I, 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 to be honest with you, I didn't love the movie. I thought it was a little too cartoony, and and uh, but it's based on a book about. It's a biography of Doug Kenny by this author named Josh Carp. Um, same title, A Futile and Stupid Gesture. And that book is wonderful. Uh, I just think that the movie, you know, I get what they were trying to do, but I just sort of thought it was a little goofy. Um, but uh, I, I do think that he's a fascinating character. And um, I think that he was really the most influential comic voice of his generation that most people don't know. Um, you know, he, he, everything he taught seemed to, you know, turn to gold. You know, he wrote Animal House, he created the National Lampoon, he wrote and produced Caddyshack, and then he would end up dying, you know, right after Caddyshack came out, you know, it was really, everyone I talked to for this book, and it was a lot of people, uh, you know, said that Doug was the smartest and funniest and most charming and wittiest guy that they had ever met. Uh, and this is, these are a bunch of pretty smart and charming and witty people. So, uh, I, I really think that he was, uh, a special, a special talent. Looking at Caddyshack and I, I, after we saw you the other night, we came home and I watched Caddyshack for the umpteenth time and mm. my wife watched Caddyshack for the first time. Uh, and But I've always seen it as a movie, that and some of the others that you mentioned, as movies that rely strongly on this form of sketch comedy. And it's something that st- I started to see in the movies in the 1970s from movies like Monty Python and the Holy Grail and Kentucky mm-hmm. Fried Movie. And I think even a movie like Vacation, you can argue that the story is not really the point. The story is just this little bitty thread in, that's there to hang these these funny scenes on uh, do you do you think that's a fair assessment and if so does sketch comedy have a place in the hollywood comedies of today i i, I first of all i think you're you you nailed it i mean i think that's absolutely what it is it's it's the you know this is a movie about uh a number this is really a collection of 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 skits that are connected you know by the slightest of threats um you know caddyshack is, is a pretty messy um movie it's and i think it's it's imperfections that make it sort of perfect in a way and i I do think that that all those movies from that era have that same same sort of feel because as you said you know monty python had been very influential Saturday Night live had been very influential so there was this there was this sense that like of of the structure of of skits um i i think that that has in a large way sort of rubbed off on the movies that are out there today. I mean, if you look at a movie like Anchorman or um, Austin Powers or something like that, uh, you know, those are movies that have the same sort of DNA. Uh, They are a loose collection of skits that are, you know, only in, in the loosest of sense tied together by something resembling a plot. You said something rather wonderful and intriguing about Caddyshack the other night. You said the fact that there's a movie at all is shocking. Uh, can you unpack that one for us a little bit? Yeah, and it's true. I really, when you sort of take into consideration how this movie was made, it's a miracle that you know <clears throat> that there's any image on on a film at all. Uh, <laughs> they, you know, this was a group of young wild people who were given a tremendous amount of of freedom to go off to Florida uh, with a blank check and, and, and make a movie. And you know, they were in Florida in 1979, uh, and these were people who liked to party. 
party. And Florida in 1979 was pretty much the gateway into the country for cocaine. Um, you know, uh, it's funny. Harold Ramis, the director, had never directed a movie before. Um, he threw the script into the trash, you know, pretty early on in the production because he believed in improv because he came out of Second City. Doug Kenny, the producer of the film, you know, and one of the writers, he was also a first-time producer, and he was in charge of this budget, and he loved cocaine. So, you know, when you put factor in all these things together, Bill Murray, for example, didn't have any lines written for him. Everything he did was ad-libbed. Uh, it's it's a it's a miracle that there's any movie at all because so much was left to chance, and it was all by the seat of their pants. Um, it's it's just it's really a a blueprint for how not to make a movie. <laughs> you said the original screenplay, I mean, a typical comedy screenplay would be what, maybe 80 or 90 pages. And did you say the original was something like 200 pages long? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. They, you know, they handed it to the producer when they were done and he, he joked that, you know, is this a movie script or, or war and peace? Um, <laughs> it, 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 uh, they, you know, they didn't really know what they were doing. They, and they, and they thought, you know, look, they were writing this while they were high, you know, there was smoke pot the whole time they wrote it. So, when you, when you're high, you tend to think that every idea you have is brilliant and totally, you know, essential to the story. Um, they didn't really, they weren't the best editors of their own ideas. Yeah, Caddyshack brought together this cast of comedians, of comic actors from a variety of different backgrounds. You know, sort of ranging from the the very newest member of Saturday Night Live, Bill Murray to this sort of old-fashioned comedy guy from the Mary Tyler Moore show, Ted Knight. Um, let's, let's talk about a, some of those characters and uh, some of those actors and, and tell me, you know, stories about, for instance, let's start out with Rodney Dangerfield. Sure. Well, Rodney Dangerfield, you know, was, was really, at the time he was cast in Caddyshack, um, he was really getting a second win in his career. He had started out as a stand-up, you know, in the in the Catskills, and, and it was sort of ahead of his time because what he was doing, his whole nervous, you know, get-no-respect uh, shtick was, was really sort of uh, a commentary on old-school comics. It took a while for people to catch up with him, but by the time they were casting Caddyshack, he was uh, in the midst of a, a, ru- a great run of guest appearances on The Tonight Show. He would make Johnny Carson like cry laughing every time he came on. And you can go on YouTube and watch those now. They're, they're brilliant appearances. Um, so, you know, they were originally thinking about casting Don Rickles in that part. Um, but they, after seeing Rodney over and over again on th- The Tonight Show, they decided to uh, give him a shot, even though he had absolutely no film experience, which would become an issue later on. Bill Murray was Chevy Chase's replacement on Saturday Night Live, and that didn't necessarily go well. What was it like for the two of them on the set together? Yeah, well, I mean, Chevy was the breakout star of Saturday Night Live in its first season in 1975, and he um, decided to split after the first season. He went out to Los Angeles to try his hand at you know becoming a movie star and he you know succeeded uh but when he left Saturday Night Live he left a lot a lot of bruised feelings behind because the 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 cast members who were left behind uh felt that he had gotten a big ego and and somehow you know that that uh he felt that they were that he was better than them and so uh, in 1978 Chevy Chase came back to guest host on Saturday Night Live and Bill Murray who has was Chevy's replacement in the cast uh sort of as the new guy sort of felt like it was his job to avenge his castmates. And so he and Chevy Chase got into a big fist fight backstage before God. Chevy had to deliver his monologue. Um, there, there was a great quote uh, during the fight, an insult that, that Bill Murray 
yelled at Chevy Chase. He said, medium talent. He called Chevy a medium talent, uh, which, which if you think about it is not like, you know, it's not a four letter word. It's not, <laughs> but man, if you're, if you're an actor or a comedian, that, that really hits below the belt, medium talent. So anyhow, by the time that they were both cast in Caddyshack, these guys were, you know, the furthest thing you could be from friends. And, um, when they got to the set, I think everyone was a little worried, you know, how, how was this going to go down? I think everyone was walking on eggshells. Um, but in the original script, they didn't have any scenes together, so you could keep them apart. It wasn't until later when when they actually uh, decided that they needed a scene with both of them in it uh, that uh, this was going to be an issue. And um, that whole scene is ad-libbed, and uh, both of them, when I talked to them, told me how they were trying to make the other guy laugh. And, <laughs> and you, if you go back and watch that scene now, you can see both of them at various points sort of trying not to laugh. And and I think that that moment, uh, you, you can sort of see the thaw, the you know, the ice between the two of them thaw a little bit. And so there were a little, you know, there's a cold piece between them after that. Yeah. And then into this group of, you know, you have two pretty young comic actors at the beginning of very successful careers. You've got Rodney Dangerfield, who, as you've said, is kind of reinventing himself from a traditional stand-up into a comic actor. And then you have this guy sort of at the end of his career, Ted Knight. How did he work with the rest of this gang? Not well. Uh, Ted Knight was really the odd man out on, in this movie. Um, you know, he was a professionally trained actor from a different generation, and uh, he was probably one of the few people on set who wasn't partying and using drugs. Uh, you know, he was of the generation where he was coming off, you know, a string of Emmy-nominated seasons on the, on the Mary Tyler Moore show. To him, acting was you show up 15 minutes early, uh, you know your lines, and you deliver those lines as they're written every period, comma, and exclamation point. Uh, a lot of his scenes are with che- are with Roddy Dangerfield, who this was really his first time acting in a movie. He didn't even know what the word action meant. <laughs> and, um, you know, he, he, he would just spout out anything that came into his head, just completely ad-libbing and that drove ted knight crazy um and so a lot of the sort of anger that you see in his judge smales character um you know that's not acting at all that is that is real rage so um you know ted was really you sort of feel bad for him but but i think that um the more i watch the movie the more i sort of realize that he he gives the best performance in the whole thing. I think he's the movie's secret weapon. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, he, he does have this sort of, as you said, this involuntary method rage, but it, yeah. it works in a in a wonderful way because it is he he is the the axis around which so much of the film is rotating. Yeah. So you've said that um, that ad libbing and improving played a played a big part in the film. You said Bill Murray didn't have any lines written in the script, and. I wonder how the process they worked on in that film compares with, say, the mockumentaries of Christopher Guest, like uh, Waiting for Guffman or Best in Show, which were, as I understand, largely improvised and yet seem a lot more sort of scripted and slick and, and put together. Is that just because they were improvised without the without the pot or are there other reasons? Well, I think, I think, you know, there's, there's a combination of factors. You're right about the Christopher Guest movies. So they give, they have an idea what the scene is going to be, but they're sort of left on their own to sort of get there, you know, to get to the destination. So, um, you know, Christopher, I think the, the, the absence of everyone being 
stoned out of their gourd is is helpful uh but i also think that you know chris guest is an experienced director he knows what he's doing he's a really gifted improviser he knows how to guide people towards the same finish line um whereas harold ramus this was his first film and even though he was a really really experienced improviser from his time at second city um you know, not everyone in the in the in the cast was on the same page. Uh, you know, it really was. Christopher Guest movies—they know where they're going to end. In this movie, they didn't know where it was going to end, and it just sort of ended when they ran out of time and money, uh, and and they just <laughs> sort of got in the editing room and and tried to make sense out of it all. You know, sort of my favorite story about the making of Caddyshack is is how when they were shooting it, they, would, they only shot one scene with the gopher. The gopher was barely intended to be in the movie at all. And uh, when they got to the editing room and, and nothing cut together, they just had a series of skits, they realized that they, they needed something to tie the movie together. So one of the producers, this guy John Peters, suggested they go back to the studio, ask for more money, and shoot more scenes with the gopher and sort of make those, the, you know, have him pop up from time to time to tie all of these loosely connected scenes together. Sort of, he could sort of be the, the through line for the movie. So, I, you know, I, I've seen Caddyshack a lot, you know, but, uh, and, I, and for a long time I had a, a lot of trouble with the gopher. I didn't think he was particularly funny. But, um, but now, uh, you know, now I know that the gopher is really the thing that saved the movie. One of my favorite things in your book is literally the last paragraph of the book, because in the end, you talk about sort of where are they now, and you do a where are they now for the gopher. You uh, have to, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just great. It's it's so much in the spirit of the film, I think, to treat him the same way you treat you know all of the other actors. Caddyshack falls into this category of film, and they you know they use it a lot when you're talking about this movie of what we call snobs versus slobs. Um, and in many ways, it's this old Hollywood tradition that goes back. I mean, I'm sure it goes back farther than this, but I can think at least back to you know George Bailey and Mr. Potter. And mm-hmm. this, and it's a tradition that says that the rich guys are the bad guys. Um, We saw it a lot in the 1980s. We saw it with movies like Wall Street and Pretty in Pink. But when we're told that wealth is the American dream, why do we as audience love to see the wealthy guys be the bad guys? Because they're not us. Uh And and I think that, you know, it goes back even further, really. If you could go to the Marx Brothers, you know, or even the, you know, Three Stooges or whoever. But but I think that there's something about – you know, the losers winning and, and the so-called winners losing, that is a really uh, a theme that really connects to almost everyone. You know, they're called the 1% for a reason. That's a very small number. And the rest of us are the 99%. And um, it feels pretty good to see see the 1% get its comeuppance every once in a while. And so I think that that's, that's sort of why these movies work. They, 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 we, they are our stand-ins. And... Um, uh, it, it's it's sort of thumbing its nose at uh, at the people who we feel are uh, have gotten a bit of a free pass in life when we're all working so hard. I think I you know just listening to you talk about that, I was immediately uh, and we were talking about Saturday Night Live earlier. I just flash back to the uh, alternative ending of It's a Wonderful Life with Dana Carvey on Saturday Night Live, where they all go back <laughs> and sort of beat Potter senseless in his wheelchair, <laughs> uh, which seems to be very much in the spirit of the Caddyshack yeah. sort of sense right. of humor. Um, you've said that comedy should be dangerous. So two questions: Was Caddyshack dangerous, and are there dangerous comedies out there today? 
that's a good question. I, you know, I would I would say that there really there aren't all that many comedies that are dangerous to begin with. You know, I, I think that um, at least with movies, it's it, there's so many they're made by corporations and, you know, corporations, their job is to not be too dangerous. Uh, so, so I think movie comedies generally never get too, too dangerous. Um, Caddyshack, you know, I, I think it's dangerous in some of its edgier comedy. It was taking chances in the sense that, you know, uh, there are raunchy gags, um, that are, are really funny, um, at a time when, when raunch hadn't really in, infected Hollywood yet. So it feels a little fresh. You could say the same thing about animal house, which had largely the same creative team behind it. Um, I, I don't, you know, I think that if you, it's much easier to be dangerous in print. If you go back and look at the national lampoon, um, that feels dangerous to me. Um, movie comedies, I all feel even when they're being dangerous a little bit not so dangerous. I mean I always I sort of feel like especially now you look at a movie like Animal House which cost what did it cost something like 2.7 million, million dollars. Yeah, it cost almost nothing to make by today's Hollywood standards. And it almost feels like Hollywood doesn't want to make a 3 million dollar movie that that makes 150 million dollars. They want to make a 300 million dollar movie that sells lunch boxes and action figures and and you can't be dangerous if you're trying to appeal to as you say the 99%. You, you, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, you know, there was a whole all of the movies that we were talking about at the beginning of our interview, you know, like movies like Vacation or Stripes or, you know, John Hughes movies, uh, that whole segment of 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 middle budget movies, um, they don't exist anymore. Yeah. Uh, there's either a really really low independent movie, low budget independent movie that's made for like you know, a million dollars or, um, you know, there's, there's the Marvel movies, which cost several hundred million dollars. You know, there's no, there's really no one making a movie for in the 30 to $50 million range, which I'd argue is where, as the sweet spot, you know what I mean? I think that's where you get the best movies. You know, I, I really, I miss that. I, I feel like, um, we're being served, uh, either, you know, oatmeal or banana splits and i there's just no one serving just a really good you know meat and potatoes meal you know i I just want to see more of that yeah so there's molly ringwald wrote an interesting article in the new yorker a few months ago about looking back on her time working with john hughes in the light of the me too movement and the things that are going on to hollywood today with bringing bringing to light the the sort of historical sexism of Hollywood. And I saw that she's doing a, a chat with Judd Apatow coming up soon for The New Yorker. What's it like to look back at Caddyshack and at some of these other movies, too, through that lens? Yeah, I mean, I read that article, and I, I really it bummed me out uh, because, you know, those those Molly Ringwald, John Hughes movies are movies that I grew up with, and, and it's it's I hate to see them tarnished by by, you know, either bad behavior or just, you know, sort of unenlightened thinking, you know, it really, I don't like to see my heroes tarnished, but it, you know, I also want to know the truth for sure. You know, watching a Caddyshack, watching Caddyshack now, you know, it's not, it's not a particularly progressive movie. You know, the, 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 the female lead in the film, Cindy Morgan plays a character named Lacey Underall, you know, she's in a lot of ways treated very much as like this, this sex bomb temptress, 
Um, you could argue that also that she's a very sort of self-empowered uh, woman who, who gives as good as she gets with all the guys. Um, I don't think it's as big a problem in Caddyshack as it is in a lot of movies from the era. Um, but, you know, it, it's it's hard because you want to uh, have these movies be as great and as, as wonderful as you remembered, but they feel a little bit off in a lot of cases now. And, and there's a real Me Too moment in the book where, where Cindy Morgan talks about uh, the nude scene she has to do in the film and how she was pressured uh, to do things she didn't want to do by the producer. Um, and so, uh, you know, I don't, I don't tell the story of Caddyshack with, with, you know, blinders on. I wanted, I thought that was a really important part of the book to get in there because, um, you know, so much has changed in the nearly 40 years since the movie was made. Yeah, yeah. If I say the word Caddyshack to, to any human being walking down the street, like 95% of the time I get one of two responses. Mm-hmm. I either get like a long quote from Bill Murray being talking about being the caddy for the Dalai Lama, you know, mm-hmm. with, with lots of smiles and like, I love that movie. Or I get a big eye roll. It's like, oh, not that that one. Why is it right. that some people, the people who love it, love it so much, and the people who don't are like not just ambivalent, but in some cases, sort of like actively dislike it? Well, I, I agree with what you're saying, but if I knew the answer to it, I, I would I would be a zillionaire because I, <laughs> you know, I could I could make movies for the 95 percent who, who don't roll their eyes. Uh, I, I don't, you know, I think it's a movie that if you saw it, especially at a certain point in your life. Um, a, a time when you were watching movie, the same movies over and over again and learning the lines by heart and quoting those lines with your friends, uh, it is an indelible part of your youth. And I'm one of those people. Uh, but I know plenty of eye rollers when it comes to this movie. And, um, you know, different strokes for different folks, is all I can say. I, they're, they're, they're wrong. And I have to credit this last question to my wife, Janice, who did not care if she's an eye roller. She did not care for yeah. the movie, but it's but she does not intend for this to be a loaded question. It was it came from a genuine place of curiosity, yeah. and that is if Caddyshack were released today, what would your review of it say? Oh, you know it's funny uh, because you go back and you re- read the reviews of it now, and um, and they're savage. You know what I mean? You would never get the sense reading the reviews of Caddyshack that came out in 1980 that that this was going to be a, a movie we'd still be talking about. You know, nearly 40 years later. You know, I think that I think that I am I can champion a dumb movie as much as the next guy, um, maybe more so. You know, there, I, I've I've recently given really positive reviews to uh, a couple of comedies. One is called Tag, and one is called Blockers, which are very much in, both in the spirit of of sort of Caddyshack. You know, mm-hmm. they're 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 broad comedies that I think a lot of people would dismiss as being sort of dumb. Uh, but, but I just, I, I appreciate that kind of comedy. I, I feel like I would probably, um, write a review where I praised it, uh, but also talked about how sloppy it was and therefore would give it like a B or a B plus and then a month later, after seeing it a second time, I'd feel bad that I didn't give it an A. 
I think it's interesting about, you know, you're talking about liking dumb movies. And I think we all have this line that we draw. We'll be like, oh, I love Caddyshack. I love Vacation. And they'll mention some other movie. Oh, no, that's a, that's a stupid movie. We, we, right. we, all have, we all have at least a few that we feel like we're, we're above, you know, yeah, but in, in spite sure. of the fact that we, we love movies that are like that. So we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. Uh, you should be able to answer each in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give us something to think about and a little bit of insight into your writing process. Uh, this is going to be slightly different for you because I've mostly interviewed novelists up, up to this point. So it'll be fun to see how uh, a nonfiction writer and a film reviewer answers these, these same questions. What word do you love to work into your writing? You know, I, I like the word uh, sweet tooth. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Oh, geez, that's so good. These are great questions. I wish I had more time to think about them. I guess uh, I hate when people use a word that I just encounter too much. So like a word like when someone says, I don't have the bandwidth to take that on right now, the word bandwidth, any sort of like corporate slogan like that, like when you call – um, a company, a brand, uh, you know, that, that sort of stuff drives me a bit nuts. Where is your favorite place to write? Any, any, anywhere. I just can't have music on. I need, I need to have a noise canceling headphones and, and no music. Where could you never write? In my four-year-old twins bedroom. <laughs> to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Probably punctuation. Um, I, I love like using dashes where I should use semicolons. I just sort of feel like that's up to the, the writer a little bit. I, I'm sort of, I'm sort of a little free and easy with punctuation. And the next question is what was the first book you remember reading, but I'll allow you to substitute if you want. What was the first movie you remember seeing? Well, I'll, I'll do the movie just cause I'm a movie guy. So the movie, the first movie I ever saw in the theater that I can remember is, um, uh, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Willy Wonka uh, and the Char- and the Chocolate Factory. I um, I remember the scene where Augustus Galoop was uh, drinking from the River of Chocolate, and it looked so good that my parents tell me I ran up to the screen because I wanted to uh, drink from the River of Chocolate too. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, my next question is: What are you reading now? But you can substitute. What movie are you going to go see next? The book I'm reading now is I just started this book uh, about um, the sinking of the Lusitania uh, by Eric Larson. Yeah, Dead Wake. It's a great one. Yeah, Dead Wake. It's really good. I love nonfiction. I'm a big nonfiction guy. What book would you like to have written? Wow. Um one of my favorite novels that I first encountered in college and reread it a lot uh, uh, by John Fowles called The Magus. I really like that book a lot, or and The Magus, as some people call it. What sort of book would you like to write but probably never will? Fiction. Yeah. I don't understand how people do it. <laughs> it's like a different language to me, and I, I there's so much freedom uh, that I don't, I don't know what I would do with it. Uh, I, I could never write fiction. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? I loved your book so much that I um, uh, passed it along to someone else. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a new community gathering place and independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. 
To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Chris Nashawati, whose book, Caddyshack, The Making of a Hollywood Cinderella Story, is available wherever books are sold. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Coming soon on Inside the Writer's Studio, I'll be talking to Jamie Rogers Southern and Ginger Hendricks to get a sneak preview of Bookmark's 14th Annual Festival of Books and Authors, coming on September 6th through 8th. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.